Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Deborah Heiser, PhD. Deborah Heiser holds a degree in applied developmental psychology with a specialty in redefining what being older looks and feels like. She has a 20-year track record of award-winning research, presentations and consulting, and is an adjunct professor at SUNY Old Westbury. In our conversation today, we explore the COVID pandemic and its impact on her practice and how she feels healthcare will change post the pandemic. You're very welcome to the show, Deborah. These are difficult circumstances, and we hope that you're well in New York. Big hello to everyone in Australia. I'm hoping that you're all safe and well. Perhaps we can start um, our conversation with what it's like to be in America at the moment. I can talk about where we are around the New York City area. I'm right outside the city, you know, three quarters of a mile outside the city in a suburb. And I can say that we've been on on a lockdown in the sense that, you know, we really aren't supposed to be leaving our homes. We have to get our groceries delivered. There are holidays coming up right now. And just today, we had all of our orders canceled because there were too many deliveries going out. So we ate eggs, which then we were going to use for our holiday. So we ate them instead. And there's this whole trickle effect um, that's happening. But try as we might. And it's such a strange experience to be in such, you know, a a country that has such excess to now not be able to get the basics of food delivered, like bread, milk, eggs, cereal, those sorts of things are, and I, I, it's been very difficult to get fresh fruits and vegetables. And that's never been the case. So you can take a risk and go out to a store and buy these things. And some people need to when they do. But I have a 93 year old living in my house. If we do that, we put her at risk. So we haven't done that. But we keep saying we might have to at some point. And that still doesn't guarantee that you're going to get what you need. Uh, you go in a lot of the, you know, the it's there just is a, not a surplus of food. There just aren't. Um, I think that there are surpluses, but they're not getting to people. So we've noticed, though, that we're calling people more often and doing Zoom conversations. And we're we're in this about a month now. So the novelty of it wore off after day three. And by that, I'm saying that tongue in cheek. There was no real exciting novelty except for the kids who thought, oh, good, I am not in school. But I'll tell you what's most sobering is that I have a friend who lives near a hospital in Brooklyn and the sirens are going off constantly and it's emotionally unsettling to the point that it really is uh, affecting daily living. It's really upsetting to hear siren after siren after siren. And we know that there have been more than 10,000 deaths. I think it's more than 12,000 now in the United States. And the majority of them are in New York City. And so hearing about somebody that lives on your floor uh, who passed away, that they were you were talking to them the day before, maybe. And then they're, they're, they've passed away the next day. It's very quick in a very... New York is a close community. It may seem like it's not, but it is a close community with neighborhoods and with people who 
communicate with each other. People think it's a cold environment, but it's not. People are very caring about their neighbors and about people in their neighborhoods. And so it's very scary to hear about someone who has lost someone or someone who gets sick, even if they recover. It's scary for everyone. And so what I would say is that it's brought the community together. Um, That's one positive. But there's an underlying anxiety and fear that everyone is feeling and a feeling of underlying uncertainty because our basic needs are being affected at this point where, you know, people are saying, I hope there's going to be food. And this affects people of, you know, any income, you know, is there going to be food? There has been an outpouring of community services taking food deliveries to people who have lost jobs or who have food insecurity. But I have a feeling that need is going to grow really rapidly. And so our whole community is turned on its head right now. Um, And by community, I mean uh, the whole New York area. At a professional level, what do you think that COVID has done for collaboration and networking across, uh, across the country, across the world? Well, you know, it's unfortunate that sometimes it takes a crisis to bring people together. And the one positive that I'm seeing is that, in fact, people are coming together, people from around the world, people from a variety of disciplines are coming together. Um, There's a real positive that I haven't seen since 9-11, unfortunately, which is that people really, you can see the real, true, beautiful character in people when you're pressed to come together to help a lot of people. And I saw that this time around where people are in the, hoping that while we're in our lockdown here in the U.S., and in other countries that we can take that time when we have the time all day long to work on projects that will get us through the crises now, but that will make it easier for any future pandemics so that we'll be more prepared and that it won't be as bad as it is right now. And so that's kind of what we're seeing unfolding right now for the next three to six months. I think we're going to continue to see people collaborating Uh, that normally wouldn't be working together on teams and that we're going to see people move the tech and health world farther than it's been seen in a long time. Can you cite um, actual examples of collaborations that have sprung up since COVID began? Well, I do know that um, there are groups that are forming. So For example, the Mentor Project brings together a a lot of individuals from a variety of backgrounds, and they're working with Epic Education Foundation, which used to take, up until COVID-19 came along, students to work on teams with a variety of mentors in, I think that it's in Sweden, or it might be Finland, I think it's Finland, and they work to solve epic challenges for NASA and other places. So they use a lot of engineering skills to uh, to bring people together. And they, they have kids uh, work on it because they have a, a fresh perspective and don't see some of the roadblocks that other more seasoned individuals might notice. So they immediately pivoted and said, let's do this for COVID-19 and try to solve some of the epic challenges that are being faced with 
healthcare and health issues that, that are we're seeing globally. So that team is being put together now with a variety of engineers and healthcare workers and epidemiologists and people from a lot of different disciplines to gather information as a baseline and then form teams outside of that for specific crises that are occurring right now or for specific things that they see will be needed in the future. So an example of some of those are using Alexa, which is something that you can, they have open source programming to get people to work with kids, mentors to work with kids, to do some programming that'll be helpful in the healthcare setting, ways that you know they can program it to respond to do things that are needed that'll be useful in a remote way. Uh, there's also a another one where they're trying to do uh, finish up some research that was started, but on a much bigger scale and to take it to other countries, looking at how you can use AI and voice recognition to detect the coronavirus when someone's speaking. So that's another way to get testing done that would also work for future illnesses as well. So there isn't the backlog of people not being able to get tested that we've seen here in the United States. We've also seen lawyers, patent lawyers uh, that are on our team who got together with other engineers around the world to make sure that there's open source patenting available, that it makes it so that people can, in every single country, make things like respirators and other things that are available to everyone so that everyone can benefit and one entity doesn't get sole ownership of it, but also so that it it makes it so that it's uh, also incentivized so that people will want to do it. So manufacturers have an incentive to do it. So this is what we're seeing now that is an impact on healthcare for now and the future. That is something I haven't seen before. I've never seen engineers working vigorously. I've never seen patent attorneys working vigorously and computer engineers working vigorously towards healthcare solutions in the immediate uh, sense that they are right now. What do you think that we are learning at this time, which we may not have appreciated quite so much before this pandemic began? I know that, you know, I'm in a house right now with five people and we have people here and it's difficult. And people are now saying, wow, I understand what it must be like for someone who lives on their own every day and they can't go out. They're on quarantine or lockdown the way we all are. And it's jarring. And it really is something that has made people think enough so that there's a new a new program that's being started. And I know that the person from, there's someone um, who's working on it with a company called Happy Seniors. And they're bringing a box where they will be able to provide live interactions with individuals that would be kind of like Skype, except it would be more of a TV-ish sort of thing. But they'll be able to have live interactions with a variety of individuals who will be giving them content that's different from TV, where you can't interact, but you can have some interaction and it is live at that moment coming into you. Because I think that people now see how important Zoom meetings are, how important Skype meetings are. Even that is something that makes you feel connected with others. And so that's pushing 
some of the work with the elderly farther than it's ever been pushed before. And the importance that we've all understood as aging specialists is being validated and picked up and noticed by others in other fields. And uh, it's making people understand that there is quality of life that is so important to take into consideration with regard to health. From what we're seeing and experiencing at the moment, it sounds like technology has really come into its own in the recent past. It's really a wonderful thing to have uh, technology right now. And I think that we're going to see a big ramp up in technology in addressing some of the security issues that we're seeing with Zoom. Um, And we're going to see some things brought together that will take some of the things that we're enjoying so much with the technology and that it's going to be applied to hospitals and nursing homes in the nearest nearer future. I think that one thing we're seeing here is um, physician visits via FaceTime. My mother-in-law who lives with us, who's 93, has had FaceTime visits with her physicians. And she felt so, her anxiety level was so reduced and she felt so secure after being reassured by her physician that she was doing what she needed to do and that the medications were right that she was taking. And just that gave her a sense of peace of mind. And I think we may end up seeing more of that from this point forward um, because it's, it's now thought of as accessible and it's seen as more normal now. I guess the, the real concern is that we are now using telehealth and video consultations almost as routine practice. And the concern would be that in these circumstances, it may somehow become accepted that this is the normal way to do business, when in fact we know that the traditional way of consulting is so much more powerful in practice. I agree with you. I've always thought of this sort of technology, meaning Zoom or Skype, as a transition uh, service, one that is not the end of the service, and it should never be seen as the service, but it should always be a transition service. If you need to see somebody before their visit, you can. If there's an emergency, you can quickly get on. It sort of blurs the line between a hard visit when you have to wait a week and somebody who can get something in between. But I, it should never be a substitute for true physical care or physical interaction ever. And I, I really would never advocate for that. I would always say that if you need something in between the weekly visit, this is a good option. Um, it's an addition, never a subtraction. Deborah, do you think that we will? be able to have a useful coexistence between the what technology now has to offer us in terms of enhancing access to healthcare and the traditional view that it's the face-to-face consultation. It's actually seeing people in person that makes such a difference in the art of doctoring. I do think that there are going to be ways that we will solve the problem of delivering healthcare with the addition of some technology. I think that we'll be able to do that. I myself primarily work in a concierge manner so that I will see someone in person, but they have full access to me at any other time. And I've found that people don't abuse that. 
it hasn't been too taxing on my time. And I think that there is a thought that everyone will be on the phone every five minutes, but that's really not how it works. And I think that as soon as people see that people are not abusing it in terms of calling the doctor every five minutes, just the chat, that it will end up being something that can be folded in so that you don't have a person going to an emergency room because they're anxious. Do you think there are other advantages to having seen this person uh, on telehealth before they actually see you face to face? You also get to get a bigger, a better picture of someone when you have more contact with them. So if you see someone once a week, you have to catch up with where you left off. There's a whole period of sort of warm up, then you're in the middle of it, and then warm down. You know, I guess that there is a better way to put that. But you can skip past some of that and use the time very much more efficiently if you're um, meeting face-to-face where you can really talk about how the person is feeling and what they really are there for. So I think we're in furious agreement that whilst telehealth is a useful tool, it is not a, and never will be, a replacement for the traditional doctor visit. Yeah, I think that I look at it as an extra tool as opposed to a change in any service. There will never be a tool that is good as the intuition of a person that you can't really do that with AI or a computer. You really just can't. And I think that you you can't ever replace any kind of physical contact. You can't replace a hug. You can't replace a touch on an arm. You can't replace any of that. But this could be an additional tool that is just like any other medical advancement that we've seen that helps in the aid of a person getting better. But it would simply be an addition, never a subtraction of something else in its place, you know, taking that this would take its place of. And I really am firm about that. I've never thought that, for example, telehealth for therapy is a good idea as as the therapy. I think that there needs to be face-to-face and there needs to be a human sitting next uh, in front of another human. There's an accountability that's there. There's all kinds of things that, that, um, that you can hide behind if you're at a screen that you can't, if you're physically in front of someone, I can't see your hands. I don't know if you're fidgeting. I don't know all kinds of things that you may be doing that you can hide while you're sitting right across from me on a screen. And that's very valuable information. The other consideration is that there is an opportunity now to make a lot of money out of uh, using technology in this way to reach out to people to improve access or increase access to healthcare and somehow sustain the incomes of doctors who may find it very difficult to function otherwise when, when it is so much more difficult for people to come to the office. Yes, and I think that's important to note that, that it's important to not see this as a money-making time where you could say, oh, good, I could see a lot of people online and I could charge less, but I'll make more money in the end, or at least the same amount, but with less time. I do not think that that is gratifying for someone. They might find financial gratification for a short amount of time, but it's emotionally not gratifying. And people who go into helping professions need the emotional gratification. And I'm speaking of this as something from my end of the side that I need to feel emotionally connected to someone. 
I also think on the other side, people will try something out in the short run, but they'll see it doesn't have a lasting impact. It's more of a transition therapy that can help you get over a tiny hump, but not over the long stretch. And for that, I think that'll fail. And my big, my only fear or worry is that people would then say, wow, therapy or treatments in this manner mean that even if it were in person, it wouldn't work well. And in fact, they're two vastly different kinds of treatment. We draw to the end of this interview. It's important to acknowledge that we will all think about what we did during the great pandemic. Your response to this pandemic is to be creative and to be thoughtful at a time of enormous challenge to mankind as a whole. Thank you. That actually means a lot to hear that. When you're in the thick of it, it it doesn't feel like it, but thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.